Welcome to The Institute, a podcast of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Melissa Clay, Communications Specialist. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Assistant Professor of Classics Jennifer Gates Foster. In their conversation, Professor Gates Foster talks about her archaeological dig in Israel over the summer. She also talks about a book that helped her understand the complexity of her home state of Mississippi. So in general, what what do you focus on in terms of your research? Um, So I'm an archaeologist, and I'm a classical archaeologist. So my main area of expertise and interest is in the world of the Mediterranean, very broadly construed. So I'm working on um, material culture and um, sites of activity related to Greco-Roman material. Um, For for me, my particular uh, specialization is in the eastern Mediterranean, so I work in places where, um, particularly in the Hellenistic world, so from about the late 4th century BC into the early Roman period, 1st, 2nd century AD, I work in areas where there was essentially areas of conquest, uh, cultural contact in the eastern Mediterranean, so in practice that means areas of the modern Middle East and Asia Minor. Great, and so I understand you have a couple of projects coming up in those areas. Can you talk a little bit about those? Uh, So I am the co-director of an excavation project at the site of Horvat Omrit. And Omrit is uh, located in northern Israel, so in the foothills of the region known as the Golan. It's not the Golan proper, not the Golan Heights, but in the area of Israel just adjacent to that, so sort of in the very tip-top northeastern corner of the state of Israel, um, right on the border with Lebanon and Israel. And so Omrit is a late Roman and early Roman site, so it is the site of a very large Corinthian-style temple, which was excavated by McAllister College. Um, in the late 90s into the early 2000s. And then our project, which is a UNC project, um, is in cooperation with um, Carthage College and um, formerly Williams College. They were a consortium partner until recently. Uh, And we are working not on the temple, but on a uh, village, essentially, uh, adjacent to that temple. So it dates from the 1st century A.D. through about the late 6th century A.D. in terms of the time period. So So has that spot of that village already been dug up or how does that work yeah, exactly yeah, or so how do you know where to start <laughs> how do we know the the site had been had been known for a, a period of time uh, it was it's near a site called Banyas uh, ancient Caesarea Philippi and it was known that there was some sort of habitation at the site of Omrit uh, for a number of decades, but nobody had worked formally at the site uh, until the team started working at the temple. And so when they were working at the temple, they did some preliminary explorations of the area around the temple. Uh, And it was obvious that there was some sort of habitation and material remains in that area, just mainly the evidence for that is simply that there are stones kind of poking up through the the soil, uh, and there was material on the surface. So um, it was pretty obvious that there was something there. They did a little bit of preliminary exploration, and then we started in 2011 working more formally. And so for an archaeologist, what that means is that we actually started the excavation in in an extensive way. So we lay out a grid and start working uh, to excavate in a very systematic, very painstaking way to uncover the remains associated with the buildings in that area. So in practice, what that means is that we've uncovered 
uh, over the past five years, uh, I would say probably about 20% of the site. We have to work very oh, slowly, okay. and it's quite large. So we've uncovered pieces of a range of different types of buildings that include houses, have a large monumental stoa-like building. It's a little hard to know precisely what that building is, but in practice it looks like a very long colonnaded building, uh, which leads along a street that approached this large temple complex. Wow. So, so would that be like a religious site, that temple? or Yeah, it seems to be. It's certainly a pagan temple. Um, okay. The pagan temple that the McAllister team uncovered has several phases. The earliest phases uh, are of a religious building of a much smaller on a much smaller scale. It seems to be Hellenistic in date, so that means sort of first century B.C., around the time of Herod the Great. Yeah. Uh, and it was remodeled several times, and its last phase, which I think is probably late first century A.D., is a very large Corinthian-style frontal podium temple, very similar to the sort of thing you might see in Rome, uh, with some sort of local flair. Uh, has some some things about it which make it more appropriate to the the setting in in Judea. Um, but it is a, certainly a religious site. It's a, a place of pagan cult worship for several centuries. The period, the material that we work in, though, shows a transition over time to a site where the main religious observances are Christian. So the community changes um, quite radically. Uh, And that's that's the Galilee, which is the region we work in. That's fairly typical to see a transition away from pagan pagan religious observance to either Jewish or Christian sites. And so our site, it seems it seemed quite clear that the community that's there is Christian, and that's the evidence. The main evidence that we have for that is that by the 4th or 5th century, we have lamps and other kinds of vessels, ceramic vessels, which carry images of the cross and other sorts of Christian symbols. And then we have a small shrine, which seems to be built near the former pagan temple, which co-ops that religious space and converts it into Christian space. So when you're there at these digs or these excavation sites, what does the – you're directing these, is that correct? I'm a co-di- the co-director. Co-director. Site, so right. as a co-director, what does maybe a typical day in these sites, what does that look like when you're over there? Yeah, so our team, um, we have a, you know we have a routine that we sort of stick to day in and day out on these projects because we're we working with students. We have UNC students with us. Um, we also have students from our other um, consortium uh, team members, so from from other institutions. And we we have a, a regimented day that makes it easy for the students to manage the the demands on their time, and also makes us more efficient. And that's an early morning. So what we do is we get up around four thirty. Um, we're in the bus uh, on the where the the vans that we use. To get out to the site. Uh, We're in those by a little bit after 5 a.m., and so we're on site as the sun is rising. It's it's hot in Israel in the summer. It's very warm. So we try to optimize our time in the field, and we're working as soon as we can. So at first light, we're out there uncovering the site, getting our tools organized. Um, So we work in the mornings uh, intensively before the sun is, is too hot, take a couple of breaks through the course of the morning, for food and coffee and tea and things like that. And then uh, we're out of the field by around 1 in the afternoon. And we return to the kibbutz where we live, take a break for about a half an hour, uh, eat some lunch, and then spend the rest the rest of the day really from around 2, 2.30 until 5, 5.30, processing our material that we've excavated that day. We bring all of the pottery and other artifacts that we've recovered from our trenches back to the kibbutz for cleaning Um, documentation and analysis and that takes up a good part of our our time do you have a favorite favorite artifact that you've you've uncovered or i don't know if i'm getting into 
favorite children territory yeah, again. Yeah, no, that's hard. I don't know if there's like a piece that was or just like thing. Yeah, kind of. That's funny. It's hard to. One. So my so my my job on my projects is uh, to analyze the ancient ceramics that we find. I'm a ceramicist by specialization. Oh, okay. That's my skill set. Is that I that I take the the pottery that we recover, and pottery is ubiquitous on archaeological sites. It's um, it preserves really well. It's really durable in the ground, and it's used for a huge range of different activities, cooking, storage, you know, tablewares, things like that. So that's my job. So the things I like the most are the pieces of pots and the bits of broken pottery that other people find kind of um, redundant and um, overwhelming. I really mm-hmm. like them. Um, but that being said, most of what we find, most of the pottery that we recover is shattered and is right. really small and usually pretty grotty pieces. Um, so occasionally we get, <laughs> we will get uh, pieces of uh, pots which are more intact, and in very rare instances we'll get actually complete pots. And so if I can fudge a bit on my answer about favorite artifacts, the thing That's that okay. I would say is my, most, my favorite thing that we have found was a room, um, so actually an assemblage of pots from the floor of a room in one of our sites in Egypt, uh, and that was in 2015. Uh, we were excavating at a site called Bir Samut, and Bir Samut is a large uh, fortification built in the early 3rd century BC to uh, act as a watering station and a fortification kind of protective structure for members of the Ptolemaic army and other people passing along this desert road, uh, which mm-hmm. functioned in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC. So Birsamut's a big place um, out in the middle of nowhere. It had, an, it had a well, had cisterns, provided water. Soldiers stopped overnight, spent time there. Um, it was a place for people to be protected, to resupply, that sort of thing. So we were working there, and uh, we were working in a part of the fort that um, had been abandoned sometime in the late 3rd century B.C., and it was abandoned very abruptly uh, for reasons that we don't really understand. Uh, seems to have been a fire in some parts of the fort, but when they left, they left behind everything, uh, and they oh, left wow. very quickly, and they mm-hmm. left behind things that they don't normally leave, like metal. Uh, metal is uh, very recyclable. You know, it can be melted down and reused. It's very rare to find metal artifacts left behind, and we find quite a lot of that in the fort. Uh, but if they also left behind a lot of pottery, and when they did, uh, they left it sitting in situations that reflect its last use. So they weren't dumped. For the, you know, for the most part, this pottery wasn't thrown away in these rooms. It was left as they as they used it. So that's extremely rare. So we had a, a room, it was called Room 25, that was the number that we gave it, um, that was a storage room, and it had over 45 complete vessels in oh, it. Oh, wow. So from the point of view of a ceramicist, it was, you know, it's like a mini Pompeii, you know, you get this mm-hmm. sealed deposit, nobody had touched it, nobody had moved the material around. In many cases, the contents were still inside the jars as well. So we had oh, wow. um, jars with uh, grain, jars with um, shells, uh, some murex shells and other kinds of seafood, clearly, that was being stored in the room. Um, in some cases, uh, we had uh, jars which had antelope horn, they were clearly killing and eating some of the desert um, uh, large fauna that lived out in the desert and so they were keeping the horn uh, and they were storing it in some of these jars Uh, and there were inkwells 
ostraca. And ostraca are um, large pieces of pottery that have been used as scrap paper. So they have lots of writing, demotic, demotic Egyptian and uh, Greek um, ostraca in the room as well. So it was just this extraordinary snapshot of all the different kinds of vessels and all the different kinds of equ- equipment and supplies that were being used by the men and women who were in residence in this fort in the late third century. So um, that produced this extraordinary assemblage of pottery that was more or less complete. Some of it had to be repaired and reconstructed, but most of the vessels that came in were handed to me in in one piece. And that was a very that was that was very unusual. It'll probably never happen again in my right. lifetime. Yeah. I will never see that kind of assemblage again. Uh, but it was really it was really, really beautiful and, and exciting to see that kind of stuff coming out of the ground. It doesn't happen that often. Yeah. That's great. What's a book that changed your life? Oh, that's a good question. It has nothing to do with archaeology that's in the fine. sense of what we've just been talking about. So I'm, I'm from Mississippi originally. I grew up in Biloxi on the coast, but my family is from a northern Mississippi town called Carrollton near Greenwood, near the Delta. And as a kid growing up there, I... We never we traveled some. My dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot when I was really small. But Mississippi was the kind of the world that I knew, and it's a very particular world. It's an interesting place and a complicated one. And as I was getting older and sort of understanding more about what was going on around me and understanding kind of the different types of people, ways of seeing the world that um, that I could see kind of on a day to day basis. Uh, there was a book that I read that really made me understand that Mississippi was both deep and complex and was important and was a place that I needed to think hard about mm-hmm. and that people had been doing that kind of thing for a long, long time. People from Mississippi had been thinking hard about what went on there for a long time. Um, so there's a book called Delta Wedding by Eudora Welty um, that I read, and it's a really odd book and really wonderful. She was a very odd woman and a wonderful woman writer. It was a very vivid, kind of magical way of seeing the world. But she was really, uh, in Delta Wedding, is really working through place and history and family and race and um, violence and all of the things that you know Faulkner does in a, a way that I could never have understood or thought about as a high schooler. Yeah. But Eudora Welty did it in a way that felt much more approachable to me, particularly because as a woman, as a female writer, she she writes in a way that is a lot about family and a lot about the things that Southern women are taught to care about. And um, that book made me see the world really differently, uh, made me think about the past there and my place in that, the place I was growing up, what I was meant to do, and um, think about the past as being very present in the in the world and being kind of magically so. And I think that had a lot to do with why I thought archaeology down the line was worth my time and was something I wanted to do. So that book did change things for me in ways that it's still hard for me to really understand. I think I'll spend a long time always wondering what it was specifically about that book. I go back to it a lot. All right. Well, thank you very much. Sure. That was great. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.